Good evening. Tonight's message is called Called Unto Holiness. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 6 in our studies of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where we saw clearly instruction for us in our daily walk in Christ through this world while we pilgrimage through this world. Here are four reasons for holy living before our great God. 1. Because of a living union we have with the true and living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2. Because the Holy Scriptures teach us to be holy, to walk as children of light. 3. Because holy living is for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it pleases God. And number four, because it is the will of God for his children to not even give the appearance of sin, even though we are sinners. Now let's read verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4. Tonight's message will be in verses 7 to 9, but I'd like us to read the context, so I'd like us to read the preceding verses and the verses that follow. So we're going to read the context of these verses, and we're going to read verses 1 to 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandment we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification in honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have forewarned you and testified. Now in those verses right there, we see clear instruction for the daily walk of the believer. And we see in verse 7, let's read verse 7 now, the reason for this instruction. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Paul then continues to speak in verse 8, that if one despises these instructions, they are actually despising God and not man. Look at verse 8. He therefore that despises despises not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Now let's read the remaining verses of the context which I wanted us to read, verses 9 to 12. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren, which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet, and to do your business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. Now every born-again, blood-washed believer, every born-again, blood-washed sinner, is painfully aware of our old nature. And we are aware that we are plagued with this body of sin as long as we are on this earth. We're plagued with sin. When we're in this body, we're plagued with sin. And the believer in Christ's earnest, sincere desire is to bring glory to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But every one of us, if we're honest, we're admit that we're nothing but miserable failures in our feeble attempts to be holy before God. In our flesh dwelleth no good thing. And while grace does not give us a license to sin, and as much as we hate sin, that's what we are. And that's what we do. We will never be without sin as long as we're trapped in the sinful body. 
But God's born-again children do not sin that grace may abound. No, because Christ dwells in us, we love what he loves, and we hate what he hates. We love righteousness. God's people love righteousness, and God's people also hate sin. And again, we hate sin more in ourselves than we hate it anywhere else. Spurgeon was so right when he said, I am my own worst enemy. That's why we're miserable when we do those things we know we shouldn't do and when we don't do those things that we should do. That's why Paul the Apostle cried out, Oh, wretched man that I am. Not that I was. He doesn't say what I was. He says, Oh, wretched man that I am. And this is a saved man writing this. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who should deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin, Romans seven twenty four and 25. As long as we're in this life and for all eternity, when this life is over, we will praise our God and rejoice in Christ, who is our righteousness. That makes us acceptable in God's sight. Christ and Christ alone is the only one who makes us acceptable in God's sight. And the born-again believer, while they're here on this earth and for all eternity, will praise our great God and rejoice in Christ who is our righteousness. Now, in light of the first six verses of this passage, which are again filled with instruction for daily living for the believer, We see the truth of the words which Paul wrote to Timothy, describing one of the purposes of the word of God. Turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. One of the purposes of the word of God is instruction in righteousness. And this is what we see in these first six verses, is instruction in righteousness for the believer, for our daily walk. Look at this in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, that means all of it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Well, why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And we know those good works mentioned there are not anything that saves us. No. No, faith without works is dead, but those works are fruits of the Holy Spirit of God. Those are works that God has ordained for us to do, but they have nothing to do with our salvation. No, they're just fruit of the great work that God's done in us, and we do not even know when we do them. I brought that out many times before. Now we see, brought forth in these verses, instruction for righteousness. In these first verses that Paul wrote in chapter 4, we see here very clearly instructions in righteousness. And Paul will conclude his words on the effects of sanctification and holiness in verse 8, which we'll look at today. Now remember who Paul's writing to. He's writing to born-again, blood-washed believers. He's writing to those who have come out of paganism. They've been turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And again, he's writing this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And he's giving this instruction to the brother in this region, in Macedonia, who were themselves steeped in paganism before they were born again. And they still live in an area which is steeped in paganism. And all the instructions of verses 1 to 8 is written for their instruction and also for our instruction. Paul tells them to avoid and refrain from their former practices, which we see here is fornication. Why? Well, because the blood of Christ has bought them. And we see in verse 7 that they have not been called to uncleanness, but unto holiness. Look at verse 7. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. 
Now, some professing Christians have a very flippant attitude when it comes to their sinful weaknesses in the flesh. They say things like, oh, well, this is how God created me. Or they say this, well, all my sins are forgiven and now I can do anything I want. I'll tell you right now, that's nothing but rank antinomianism. And they have no concern. They have no concern at all when they offend one of God's children. They don't care. They have no remorse over their open rebellion against Christ who they profess to believe in. So we see here then that verse 7 is very clear on the subject of the believer's personal life of holiness. And remember, we're only made holy in Christ. We as believers, we hate sin. We hate sin in ourselves, don't we? And his dear brother Donnie Bell said, we sin more than we desire to sin. And we see it made very plain. Look at look at this in verse 8. We see it made very plain that anyone who despises these admonitions and these warnings, this, these instructions which are in these words that Paul wrote, we see that they don't despise the messenger, which is the apostle, and, and today would be pastors who preach this portion, but rather they despise the author. They despise God Almighty. Look at verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, 8. He therefore that despises despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Now the word despiseth there in the text in the Greek, it means to do away with, to set aside, to disregard, to thwart the efficacy of anything, to nullify it, to make it void, to frustrate it. The last portion of the definition of this Greek word is to reject, to refuse, to slight. Not only do those who are spoken here despise the words of Paul and Silas and gospel preachers who proclaim these truths, but they despise God. They despise God. And every source of any and all rebellion is the hatred of God. And with that hatred comes the rejection of his word of command. The warning's clear here. There's no debating this, is there? Here's the clear warning without debate. To reject the word of God is to reveal hatred for God. Part of the pagan custom and culture in Macedonia during this time was fornication, which was a rejection of marriage and therefore a mockery of Christ and his church. And Paul said that believers in Christ are to flee from those sins. This was not a custom relating to the church of the living God. No, the church has one focus, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we gather together and support the work of God for the furtherance of the gospel, which speaks of and proclaims the one thing needful for bankrupt sinners, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved his people from the judgment and wrath of God Almighty against their sin. And the born-again believer in Christ is made to feel their sins and to trust Christ as their saviors because we've learned that Christ was delivered for our offenses and that he was raised again for our justification and that all this forgiveness that we have, it is Christ and Christ alone who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. So we see in verse 8 that our Lord is telling us through the inspired writings of the Apostle Paul that these teachings concerning what we call practical godliness, a life of holy living for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, are not to be despised. These are more than just the words of God's faithful preachers. These words come from our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we despise these words, it's not Paul and Silas, it's not God's preachers we despise, but we despise God himself. They despise the Holy Spirit of God, who has had Paul pen these words for instruction in righteousness to believers and to lead us into all truth. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who they despise. It is the Holy Spirit of God who they despise. It's the Holy Spirit of God who has given us his holy word. 
So if one despises these exhortations now delivered, these commandments given by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the will of God, if they reject them with contempt and take no notice of them and do not act according to them, then they despise not man, but God. And let us also consider the deity of Christ and the fact that, who again, whosoever despises the Lord Jesus Christ, they despise God himself because Christ is God incarnate in the flesh. And such despisers spoken of here in verse 8, again, they despise the Holy Spirit of God, who's the author of the word of God. Now, in light of these exhortations, let us now consider verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Paul also penned these words over in the book of Galatians. He says, In Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. And we know that love that Paul writes about there is the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. It's the fruit of the Spirit. We can't muster it up. No, no one no matter how much they tell you to love the brethren, no one who has not the Spirit of God in them can love the brethren. They just can't. But if you have the Holy Spirit of God in you, you will love the brethren, and it'll be manifested. It'll be manifested not in word only, but in your deeds toward the brethren. Let's look at 1 John. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we'll read verses 14 and 15. And then we'll just go over one chapter over after that, and we'll look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. So let's first look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The scriptures declare, We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And turn one chapter over to 1 John chapter 4, where we read verses 7 to 11. Again, very clear instruction given to us by John here, John the Apostle, and again, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Beloved, ah, I love that, divinely loved ones. Beloved, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifest the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now all true believers have ceased from their own works, their own labors, and have entered into the rest of the perfect redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only in Christ and Christ alone can we find perfect peace and perfect rest. And our faith, if it be the faith of God's elect, will bow the heart before God in humble recognition of the fact that we contributed absolutely nothing to God's unspeakable gift, which is eternal life in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, the believer's Savior and the believer's Redeemer. And with grateful hearts, filled with praise and adoration to our great sovereign God, we echo the words of Jonah and we echo the words of the saints through all the ages. Salvation is of the Lord. Also, we see in verse 9 and the other verses that I referenced over in First John, that true saving faith fills our hearts with genuine love, not only for our great triune God, but also a love for the brethren, a love for the gospel, and a love for the scriptures. Of course, a love for our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a love that we never had in our 
unregenerate state. And this gift of God's faith moves us into loving submission to our new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we go to we go into the waters of baptism with a sincere desire to confess Christ as our perfect redeemer, who by himself purged our sins from God's sight forever. And the love our Lord Jesus Christ has put into our hearts for him has loosened our tongues, hasn't it? It's loosened our tongues to do what? To publicly and boldly declare that Jesus Christ is our risen, exalted, sovereign Lord. Whenever the Lord opens a door of utterance for us, which is absolutely marvelous because that's what it's called, a door of utterance. We speak of the great things that Christ has done for us. He who works all things after the counsel of his own will. He who controls this whole universe and everything in it. And he does it all for his glory and for the good of his chosen blood-bought children. The Spirit of Christ dwelling in us gives us a love for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A love to want to be where his gospel is preached on a regular basis. And a love for God's people, those who have also been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we desire to be with fellow blood-washed saints who add nothing to the complete finished work of Christ alone. And again, our salvation and our cry is with Jonah and with all the elect of all the ages, that salvation is of the Lord. And God's born-again, blood-washed children believe that salvation is the work of our great triune God, all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man's work has nothing to do with salvation. God our Father chose a particular people in Christ before time began. God the Son redeemed all the elect with his precious blood, reconciling all of us to God by laying down his life for us and redeeming us with his precious blood. God the Holy Spirit quickens, which means gives eternal life to those for whom Christ died, were born again by his Holy Spirit, bringing us into a living union with the resurrected, glorified God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and living God, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. We do believe also that good works accompany salvation. Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And But we also believe that those works do not save us in any way. They are but fruit of a majestic, sovereign work of God in us. And again, I've said this many times, and I'm going to say it again. We do not even know when we do these works. Faith, though, beloved, works by love. And it motivates all of God's saints as we serve King Jesus, our great God and King, who is seated on his sovereign throne in glory. And by his sovereign power, God's people have been translated into his eternal kingdom. And right now we're just pilgrims and sojourners passing through this sin-infested world, waiting for our appointed time of departure or the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, we have set our affection on things above, not on things of the earth. And the church of Jesus Christ is our true family. If the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which Romans 5, 5 brings forth, it will be obvious to others that we're disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ because of our love for one another. 
which is brought forth in John 13.35. God himself has taught us to love one another. And a mark of a true believer is their love for one another. We know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. This is a mark of every believer. This is something that Satan cannot counterfeit. The believers, true believers, have a love for each other that the world, the world sees it. And the world knows believers are such because they love one another. But it does not make the world happy. No. We see in verse 9 that Paul knows that the Lord has taught these brethren to love one another. So he has no need to write to them about the fact of it. Brotherly love to those who are the members of Christ's body, again, is a work of God the Holy Spirit. It is he who knits our hearts together in love. It is he who knits the hearts of God's people together because they are truly regenerated souls and they are one in Christ. So let us remember the words of Paul the Apostle, which are written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, that we are to think upon these things which are true, these things which are honest, just, pure, lovely, and of a good report. And believers in Christ, they're to think about Christ. They're to think about these things. And beloved, Christ is all those things to us. He's true. He's the true and living God. He's, he's honest. He's pure. He's just. He's lovely. And the gospel is a good report of the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you this. Is there any better report than Christ died for sinners? Is there any better report than that? Oh, my. Oh, to a born-again, blood-washed believer, there's nothing better than that. This only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? The Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. Our great creator became a man. Why, some may ask. Also, he could establish a perfect righteousness for his people, which he did when he honored God's holy law by his perfect obedience to the will of God and our Father in the place of his people. So think of this too, how abominable and how wicked we must be that nothing less than God coming down and taking unto himself human flesh and being made in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin, so that he would have a body in which he could suffer death on the cross in the place of his people. When Christ our Redeemer laid down his life for us, when he satisfied the holy justice of God for all his chosen people, how wicked must we be? How awful sin must be and how horribly sinful we must be that Christ Jesus our Lord must be the one who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, the sinless one, dying for sinners, the just one, dying for the unjust. Why? Well, he poured out his soul in offering for sin and that's our sin. He's sinless. So think of how exceedingly sinful sin is that it would take such a sacrifice as the Lord Jesus Christ, who was delivered for our offenses and who was raised for our justification, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. It is he who did this in the place of his people. How utterly lost, helpless, and without any ability to better ourselves must we be before an infinitely holy and righteous God, that Christ himself, God's dear Son, would take our place before his Holy Father on the cursed tree in our room and place, and that he would there... Bear what I could not bear and what you could not bear as a believer, which is the infinite righteous wrath and justice of God against us in our sin. And by his suffering in our stead, 
by his suffering in our place, he consumed the wrath of God, which was against us. He satisfied God's infinite righteous justice for his people. And yet, yet after Christ having done all this in our room instead, we are totally unable to see these things or to know these blessed truths or even care about them unless we are born again. Our carnal minds were enmity against but God in our natural state. I had someone one time tell me I was never an enemy with God. My, oh my. That's someone who sits under the gospel. Never an enemy with God. So what you're saying is you don't believe God's word. That's what you're saying. That's what you're saying. Because God's word says that we had enmity against God in our minds and by wicked works, which we done, which we done. My so how, how are our minds changed from enmity and our wills bought into the subjection to God? Well, there's nothing we can do to change that situation, is there? And the gospel preacher proclaims this is why that, that state that we're in, that enmity against God, this in our natural state, this is why we proclaim that nothing, absolutely nothing can be added to the finished work of Christ because it's he who's paid our sin debt. It's he, it's he who's done it all. It's he who paid the sin debt in full for all those who were given to him by the Father. In the eternal covenant of grace, he did it all. And in the only way our minds can be changed from having enmity to God to rejoicing in what Christ has done for us and our wills to be bought into the subjection of God is to be born again. And that only comes about by the power of God and the Holy Spirit. So think upon this. Jesus Christ, the God-man, our sovereign Lord, is right now seated on his sovereign throne in heaven. He's a great high priest of his people. He's making intercession for all those he laid down his life for. And he is seated as our blessed surety with all power in heaven and earth belonging to him to make sure that all his blood-bought children are delivered from the power of Satan, the power of darkness, the power of sin, and the power of self. Oh my, Lord, please deliver me from myself. And God's people are kept by his power through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. They believe on Christ. They believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our Savior seated on his throne in heaven as the sovereign Lord over all his creation. Oh, just think about that. Our blessed Redeemer is our sovereign God. He has blessed us to be his people. God's children perform good works, not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. And in our best state, we're still altogether vanity. And we know it, don't we? And it'll take omnipotent power to make us willing to be saved. We must be drawn to God because in our natural state, we're unwilling to come. We must be given a new heart, new wills, new minds, new desires, new loves, new natures. If we are to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And none of these things can we do for ourselves. But praise God's almighty name. He's loved us and gave his son for us. And with him, he freely gives all things. He sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And we cry, Abba, Father. God's people now cry, Abba, Father. Then after the regenerating power of God, the Holy Spirit, then after being regenerated, and fleeing to Christ, the born-again, blood-washed believer considers it a great honor to be used of God in any way that he pleases to use us. And we seek to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ 
we seek to bring glory to the one who's loved us and gave himself for us. In the earnest, sincere desire of every born-again, blood-washed child of God is to do his will. And this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Praise be to God that God's people are sanctified and made holy in Christ and Christ alone. Amen and amen.